Well, good morning, friends. And happy Labor Day weekend. Guys, you've been working so hard. Why don't, why don't you just take a seat? Why don't you just see how I did that? My name is Jonathan Swindle. I'm one of the pastors here at New Life Midtown. And guys, our senior pastor is preaching at New Life East today. So Pastor Jade, we bless you. And I believe Pastor Christie's at North. We're just, we're scattered all over the city today. Uh, but it is good to be with you on this Labor Day weekend. And man, y'all really showed up. I was nervous at 930 when there was eight people here. But the spirit of rest is upon you, and it is good. I have a couple of announcements before we jump into the message today. Uh, the first, well, actually, let me start with table groups. We had a cool little video in there. Guys, my house was in there for like half a second. That was really neat. But our table groups launched about a week ago. And how many of you attended a table group this last week? Excellent. About half the room, honestly. That was great. So we still have uh, half the groups have space left. So the other half of you, there is room for you too. There is room in the inn, okay, for all of you. So find a group. There's about four or five groups that still have space, various nights of the week. Guys, if you want to get involved and get plugged in more deeply, table groups is the number one way to do it. This round of table groups will run all the way through Thanksgiving, up until Thanksgiving. So uh, most of the groups meet every other week. I'd love to encourage you to go sign up for a group. Also, we have the XO Marriage Conference coming up. Now, this is one of the events that all eight of the New Life congregations participate in. And there are these little brochures out at our Welcome Center, as Sadron said just a moment ago. This is this upcoming Saturday, but it is a wonderful marriage conference. New Life has hosted this many, many times. So I would encourage you, if you are free, if this upcoming Saturday and available and want to put in a little work on the marriage... Sign up for the XO Marriage Conference. Also, men, do you know what's coming? We are less than two weeks away, gentlemen. This is your time to shine. At least historically, the last two weeks before retreat are the time when the bulk of you sign up. So I want to say, if you've been meaning to, good intentions get you so far. But that last little bit of follow-through... Right here, keyboard warriors, this is your chance. Please register for the men's retreat. It is less than two weeks away, guys, a week from this upcoming Friday and Saturday. We're going back up the mountain, Bear Trap Ranch. How many of you are looking forward to it? It's one of the highlights of my year. So guys, please register if you can. And if you are new to New Life Midtown, this also is an incredible way to get plugged in with the guys. Historically, what we, here's what we've seen. Time and time again, what would normally take about six months of coming on Sunday mornings, coming to a quarterly men's breakfast or a quarterly fire, fire pit night can happen in that 27 hours of men's retreat. If you are able, I really want to encourage you to go. Uh, there is a cost, and if the cost inhibits you from registering, please come up and see me immediately after service. We want to do whatever we can to make it possible for you to go. Last announcement, our very own Dr. Jim Bixler Sr. That is highly appropriate, guys. Dr. Jim uh, is hosting a seminar called Overcoming Anxiety. Now, we're about six weeks out, but this is really, really important. How many of you guys know, and I'm going to talk about this actually in the message today, that anxiety is 
pervasive in society right now. And there are things that we can do. Sometimes medicine is necessary, but other times that there are techniques and things that we can practice to lower the anxiety in our lives. And so Dr. Jim is going to spend a Saturday morning for free coming to teach on anxiety and things that we can do to alleviate some of the anxiety in our lives. So if this is you, I'm obviously not going to ask you to raise your hands, but honestly, I think it would be amazing for almost any of us to go to. So sign up for that. Overcoming Anxiety, Dr. Jim Bixler, a gold mine of information and wisdom. Christ is risen. He is risen if I say nothing else this morning of value, which I hope will not be the case, <laughs> then enough has been said. Christ is risen. He is the reason for our gathering today. If you're new with us, welcome. We're in a series on the book of Nehemiah. This is the third week, the third installment. We're going to start, I was going to start in Nehemiah chapter 2, but we're going to actually start the first four verses of the book. So Nehemiah 1, 1 through 4, just a second, we're going to read this. Let me catch you up on some of the backstory, and then we're going to read these verses, and I have something that I, I very rarely do this. But I felt so strongly this morning something from that I hope is the Lord, I sense is the Lord, for me and for this community. And uh, it's not really, it's tangentially related to the message. So we're going to read the first four verses here, talk a little bit about the context of what is happening, and then I'll begin preaching right away. Verse 1, or chapter 1, verse 1, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hekeliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the province and are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire." When I, Nehemiah, heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and prayed and fasted before the Lord, the God of heaven. And then I said, and then he reads, or he, his prayer is recorded in scripture. So what has happened is that this is at the end of the Babylonian exile. And the Jewish people have been making their way back to Jerusalem, back to the, the territory of Judea. And this has been happening over a period of some years. And so Nehemiah knows that this is happening, but he's unsure of the state of the city of Jerusalem. So he gets this report. Now, where is Nehemiah? Nehemiah is a Jew, but Nehemiah is serving in the citadel of Susa. And full disclosure, without Google, I would have had no clue where the <laughs> citadel of Susa was. But the citadel of Susa is in the land of Persia, and where he was at was on the south side of the mountains in modern-day Iran, which if you MapQuest it <clears throat> or Google Maps it, it's well over a 24-hour drive. So he's nowhere near his homeland, especially in that time. He was a really, really far, uh, far away from the land. And he's serving the Persian prince in his kingdom, in his castle. And he gets word about the state of his people most of whom it is unlikely he has ever met. 
And he begins to weep when he hears about the vulnerability that they are in in the city of Jerusalem because of the walls and the gates being burned. It grieves Nehemiah. He's moved to mourning. And at first, if you know the story, it's easy to go, well, yeah, this is very natural. But what hit me this morning was that this man doesn't know these people. It is highly unlikely he has met any of them who are currently in Jerusalem. These are his distant, distant relatives. And he's got it made. Y'all, he is serving the Persian prince in his castle. He's friends with the king. And yet his heart breaks for his people who are living in a land far, far away, who are vulnerable to attack, who are shamed, who are open and not protected and likely have very little provision. And it hit me this morning that this was more than just sympathy, more than just compassion, but that he was moved and grieved with a burden from the Lord. And this morning, I want to talk about what it looks like to carry a burden from the Lord. How did Nehemiah carry a burden from the Lord faithfully? And we're going to jump into that. But before we do, it hit me that we, Pastor Jade last week was reading from Matthew 13, the parable of uh, the different types of soil. And we're going to turn there in just a minute. I didn't give this to the guys, to the notes, because I wasn't sure if I was going to say this. But we're going to read from Matthew 13 in just a minute if you want to make your way over there. And what struck me this morning is that Pastor Jade over the last couple of weeks has been talking about tending our garden and learning, retraining ourselves to be sensitive to sin. And the first week, two weeks ago, he talked about, he used the language counterfeit lovers or idols or things that come in and like the weeds that withstand the wind choke out the word of God, the kingdom of God in our lives. But if we turn to Matthew chapter 13, let me turn there. I want to talk very briefly here in the beginning. I'm going to read verses 3 and 4. Jesus is telling this parable, and he says, uh, A farmer went out to sow his seed, and as he scattered the seed, some fell along the path, and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. I like that language there. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. But when the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. What struck me this morning is that before we can talk about how to carry a burden from the Lord faithfully, it might be helpful to address the fact that some of us are not capable of responding to the burdens that the Lord might be trying to bring to us because we have been hardened from life. Amen. We have been hardened from life. I was reading this, and I thought, what is a path? Think back to movies you've seen or what, what it would be like before there was actual asphalt that was laid to create a path. A path is just like any other part of the ground that's just been trodden and well-worn from foot. It's been worn by being trampled on over and over and over and over again. There's no, nothing else other different about the soil other than the fact that it's been walked on over and over and over again to the point of being hardened. 
And I thought some of us in the room are unable to carry burdens at the moment because our heart, our inner life has been hardened from life. Certainly there are those of us in the room that there is sin that we are well aware of what it is, something that needs to change in our life, some way of coping with things, alcohol, drugs, sex, the way we spend our money, whatever that may be. But I think what is probably more likely for more of us in the room is that we are no longer response-able when the Lord impresses upon us a burden. Think about the word responsible, but think about it in two words, response-able. We're no longer able to respond because there is no depth of soil anymore in our inner lives because we have been hardened. I was talking to a friend of mine who goes to this congregation a couple of weeks ago. He's not in the room, so I might get a little loose with the story. No. <laughs> and he was talking, we were talking about how over the last 18 months to two years, he's had a really hard time, lost a very close friend, had some difficult things happen in his life. And, he, and, and things at work have been very difficult. And he was sharing with me how truly he hasn't had the opportunity or the mental and emotional space to grieve. And that he felt like the Lord had given him grace for a period of time. And he's been able to go on with life. But he was ju is just now coming into the awareness that that time is coming. And I think for each of us, there are seasons in our lives where we have to buckle down and we just have to live by discipline. We have to do the things that we know we need to do to stay alive. Just stay alive. Last of the Mohicans, if any of you got that quote. <clears throat> no matter how far. <clears throat> I don't know how he got a British accent. Sorry about that. But here's, here's what is problematic. In this life, if we don't make time to slow down and make time to deal with loss and grief and stress and anxiety and the pressures of life, then what inevitably happens is we will become numb to the, to the feelings. And we will become hardened as a way of learning to make it. And before we know it, we're no longer even able to recognize that the grace is lifting on that season. And this is now our new normal. And to be quite frank with you guys, I realize, <clears throat> as Bonnie and I have a sabbatical coming up in a couple of weeks... And I started doing some preparation for this about, I don't know, a month to two months ago. And one of the things that hit me was, it's time to deal with some grief. And grief doesn't have to be a big tragic thing. It might be for some of you in the room. But for some of us, it's the loss of a million little things over the last couple of years. Where now we've just been hardened against hoping for anything. And disappointment is now our new normal. And <clears throat> this was not in the message until this hit me this morning, reading, reading this from Nehemiah, thinking there are probably a good percentage of people in the room that will hear me talk about how to carry a burden of the Lord. And they are completely numb to feeling. They care. Most of us in the room care about injustices in the world. We care about the pain of one another. But it's difficult for us to be moved to a place of intercession, a place of 
compassion that actually moves and does something because we've been hardened by the things of life. Before we move on, I want to take just a moment and pause and pray for those of you who would be in that spot. I was thinking about dental work. I know that's a natural thing for you guys to think of in the mornings. (laughs) But I was thinking about anesthesia. And what anesthesia does is it numbs us from the pain when we go under. But the other thing that anesthesia does that is probably the dentist's number one reason for using it is it keeps us from being able to respond. Because I don't know about you, but if you've ever gone into dental surgery, if you didn't have anesthesia, what are you going to do? You're going to clamp down with your mouth. And the work is unable to get done. So there is a period of time and there are good reasons that we have coping mechanisms and we, we make our way through life. But if we don't unnumb, if we don't deal with those things in healthy ways and allow the spirit to bring us back to life in our inner life, then we learn to live numb and we are no longer able to respond. So I want to take just a moment and pray for those of us who might find ourselves in any, any of this sphere that I've been talking about the last six or seven minutes. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would come. And for those of us who, through the cares and worries of life, through the griefs of life, through disappointment, whatever it may be that, that we have dealt with, now feel numb to some level, to some extent, and unable to respond to the burdens that you are placing around us and inviting us to respond to, I ask that you would bring us back to life. I pray over our hearts and our minds, and I pray that the life of the Spirit would begin to till the soil of our hearts. I pray that where things have been compacted and trodden by people, by situations, by griefs, by unforgiveness, whatever it would be. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would till that soil this morning. We want to feel again, but not just to feel again, to feel in you, to feel the things that you impress upon us, to feel the burdens that you are bringing to us, to to feel the, the pains and the compassion for the people around us that you're calling us to meet. We ask you to do it this morning, Holy Spirit. Amen. So that was all a little precursor to the message. Um, But I want to talk about how Nehemiah carried the burden of the Lord. How did he, what did he actually do to respond in a faithful way to the burden that the Lord had impressed upon him? The first thing we're going to read is that Nehemiah waited. Nehemiah was patient. Turn back to Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to read the first eight verses from chapter 2. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid, note that. But I said to the king, May the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? 
Then I prayed to the God of heaven, and I answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city of Judah, where my ancestors are buried, so that I can rebuild it. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take, and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, note this, so I set a time. I also said to him, If it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the royal park, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence which I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of God was on me, the king granted my requests. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The first thing Nehemiah did was he waited. What is in the details is that from the moment that Nehemiah heard from his brother to the moment that he was in the king's presence and allowed his grief to show was actually well over a hundred days. It was a four-month gap where Nehemiah carried this burden and allowed the burden to simmer within him. He allowed the Holy Spirit to move him from angst or vengeance or being overwhelmed at the task to actually being able to take responsibility and go before the king. Nehemiah actually waited before doing anything longer than the task of rebuilding the walls actually took. He waited I don't know about you guys, but I don't like to wait. (laughs) And here's the thing, especially when we believe a burden is from the Lord, most of the time we don't want to wait because we feel irresponsible. We feel like we're not doing what the Lord has asked us to do. But here's what we learn from the Old Testament that we don't see so much in the New, that God is not in a hurry. The Old Testament shows us that God is not in a hurry. Think about this. The New Testament was written maximum over the period of 100 years. And most of us, if we're honest, live between the Psalms and the New Testament when we're reading the scriptures. And we read these stories in the book of Acts where it seems like everything happens spontaneously, in the moment, all the time. And we're convinced that's the way that God has called us to live. And there is a measure of truth in that, that we are called to live out in the way that we respond to the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But the Old Testament gives us a different picture, an alternative picture, the other side of the same coin. Not a different coin, the other side of the same coin that shows us that God is not in a hurry. The Old Testament is written over the course of about 1,500 years. And we see in the Old Testament that even when it seems like God urges somebody to do something, it's one of these hurry up and wait situations. (laughs) Hurry up, Moses. Go into Pharaoh's courts and show him these signs. Allow me to show him these signs through you so that... We can hurry up and wait in the wilderness because of your unfaithfulness. (laughs) David, come in from the backside of the wilderness and be anointed so that you can go back 
where nothing seemingly will have changed and wait for 20 to 30 years before anything else substantial seems to happen in your life. The Old Testament gives us the picture of a God who waits. And as uncomfortable with waiting as we are, we cannot get around the fact that we serve and follow and respond to a God who is comfortable waiting. There was a time just about nine years ago in my life where I started, I was working at a university, and I started feeling the rumblings of transition. How many of you have ever felt the rumblings of transition? If you're in the military, you just live in that state, I would imagine. Every two to three years, you got to get up and move, and so you probably just learn to be uncomfortable in living in a state of transition. But I started to feel these rumblings. And, you know, at the time, I'm 25, 26 years old, and it felt so strong to me, like God is doing something. And at the time, Bonnie and I had only been married, I don't know, a year or two years, somewhere in there. And I felt so strongly that I called somebody who I didn't know very well, but was probably 30 years my elder, a professor, um, a former professor of mine, who was now a pastor at a really large church over in the East Coast. And I called him and I just said, it feels to me so strongly like God is like about to move us. Like I just don't feel home here at all anymore. And he said, yep, yep, I understand. He asked a few questions. And he said, the wisdom that I would have to offer you is that it sounds like, I could be wrong, but it sounds like it's probably two to three years away. It sounds like these are the initial stirrings of getting you uncomfortable in your situation, but don't be too quick to move. That was his counsel to me. And you know what? It was two years later, and we moved here. And I tell you that story just as a way of relating that so many times we're wanting God to do something, and so we carry that inner anxiety into everything that we think we're called to do. And everything needs to happen now, if not yesterday, when God is saying, look, I am doing something, and there is going to be a time when it's time to move. And it's time to do the thing. But don't rush God into that moment. Waiting, fasting, and praying led Nehemiah to respond with restorative action rather than revenge. Here's what's not in the text that we know from piecing together stories in the Old Testament. That it is highly likely, it is probable, that the king that Nehemiah is serving in the citadel is actually the one who is responsible for the most recent damage in the city of Jerusalem. That Nehemiah is actually going before the man who is responsible for the walls being torn down and the gates being burned. And it's not lost on him. And you have to know that it took him that long in the place of waiting and in the place of prayer to get beyond the place of vengeance to a place where he wouldn't go storm into the king's presence and likely lose his own life. 
and work that out in the secret place with the Lord, that he could then go before the king with a pure heart and not cast blame or accusation, but ask the king for the things that he needs to get the job done. Why does God make us wait? There are probably hundreds of reasons beyond what any of us in the room will ever know. But not the least of which is because so much of the time, we hear things and our initial responses are not pure. Our initial responses need to be sifted in the presence of the Lord over time so that then we can be moved by genuine compassion to a place of restorative work rather than vengeance. I know this is true of my life over and over and over again. The initial things that come out of me when I hear bad news are often not great. That's a very kind way of saying it. Mike apparently is the only one who can relate. Why does God make us wait? Dozens, if not hundreds of reasons that hopefully he'll share with us someday in all of eternity. But one of the things I know is that it takes time in his presence and time in prayer to sift the things within us that are impure, to get them to a place where we are then able to act with a measure of purity to bring restoration to the things that he's calling us to. Number one, Nehemiah carried the burden patiently. Number two, he carried the burden prayerfully. So we skipped over this. Pastor Jade read it two weeks ago. But the remaining verses in chapter one are Nehemiah's prayer. And if you haven't read it, I would encourage you to read it. We're not going to read it in this moment. But here's what strikes me in chapter two. He goes before the king. The king acknowledges his sadness of heart. What an emotionally healthy king, y'all. That's impressive. This cannot be sickness. This can only be sadness of heart. That's impressive. Then the king asks him, what do you want? Now, Nehemiah has been in the place of prayer for four months, and he doesn't just spout things off. He once again turns to God in prayer. I think there's a couple of things happening here. Number one, Nehemiah prays as a way of acknowledging that there is a third person present in the conversation. Think about, and it says in the chapter that he was very afraid. Think about the intimidation of going before the king, who you and the king both know that king had something to do with the state of Jerusalem. And you're going to go before him and make these requests. Nehemiah prays in that moment as a way of acknowledging God. You're not going to leave me out to dry, are you? You're present, aren't you? I know we've been talking for four months, but this is the moment where the rubber hits the road. It's a way of reminding himself that God is there in the middle of that conversation. It's also, I think, number two, it's also a way of resisting presumption. Resisting presumption, he asks God about the details. So many times I can think about things in my life where I'm praying and I'm praying for something. And the moment I see the first domino fall, I jump into action. And I jump into action and instincts kick in. And I think if we're honest, this is true for most of us in the room. We're praying for the salvation of someone we love. We're praying for a better job, a transition in 
in our lives. We're praying for a wayward child. We're praying for whatever it may be, a burden that we're carrying for our city, for our community, for our family. And we're praying and we're praying and we're praying. And at the first sight of the inbreaking of God's spirit, we immediately jump into action and don't ever look back. And what is that? It's not inherently wrong, but it is presumption. It's presumption that we know how God wants to carry this thing through to the end. And I think what Nehemiah is showing us here is that, yeah, four months in the secret place, praying and thinking about all of the things that he's going to do, in that he still doesn't feel so confident that he yet wants to leave God out of it. God, I'm still coming back to you with the details. I see that this is the moment, and once again, I'm calling on you. And if you read through the whole book of Nehemiah, you will see that there are 15 recorded prayers throughout the book of Nehemiah. That Nehemiah intertwines this prayer and work, prayer and preparation dynamic, which we're going to talk about in just a moment. Nehemiah gives us a beautiful picture of what it is to pray and work with God, to partner with God and not pray in the beginning and then do the things you know you need to do, but to pray in the beginning and then do the things you know you need to do prayerfully, with open hands, with postured toward God in an open-ended conversation that at any moment, God can break through to you and change the course of action. Some of us are operating full steam ahead on the last thing we heard God say, which is not a bad thing to do. That's often a thing that is preached. But we're doing it like this. We're staring into the distance. We're doing it full steam ahead with all of our energy. And we haven't ever opened up our space, our inner space, our inner life, to ask God and give God permission to change the plan, ever. And if you read the Old Testament you will see time and time and time again that the saints and the prophets and the kings are doing something and it seems as if God breaks in and changes the course of action. Are we postured in a way to do that, to hear from God or do we hear from God and then do all the things that we think we're supposed to do, never looking back, never turning our ear toward heaven again? And last, prayer was the basis for the burden And it was also the fuel to carry out the work. It was also the fuel to carry out the work. That he didn't receive this burden from God in prayer and then just work. He realized early on in this process, there's no way I'm going to have the stamina, the energy, even care enough to finish this job if I don't continue praying. How easy would it have been for Nehemiah to get to Jerusalem and see the state of the walls and go, man, I ain't sign up for all this. This is a lot more work than I thought it was going to be. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to find a delegate. I'm going to empower someone else. (laughs) Good Christian leadership, right? Empowering others. No, Nehemiah refused the urge to go back to the comfort of the citadel And he stayed until the completion of the project. There's no way he would have been able to do this apart from the fuel of prayer in his his life. 
Robert Jensen, a theologian who passed away just a few years ago, says, prayer is an invitation to share our advice about how we think the world ought to go with God. (laughs) Think about how humorous that is and how audacious that is. But it is also the greatest invitation ever extended to humanity. That prayer is an invitation to partner with God in how the universe is unfolding. Prayer is something that we cannot afford to abandon. And Nehemiah knew this and he modeled it. Number three, Nehemiah carried the burden into diligent preparation. Number one, he was patient. Number two, he prayed. But he didn't just pray. Number three, he prepared diligently. How do we know this? That moment in verse four when he turns to God right before responding to the king, he has a laundry list of letters Do you think that just came to him in the moment? Okay, I'll give you a 5% chance that that's what happened. But more than likely, what happened is in those four months of prayer, Nehemiah was actually being prayerful in his preparation. That he's like Mary, pondering this thing in his heart. God, if this is the burden that you're calling calling me to, show me how to do it. Give me favor with the king. God, I'm going to need protection. This is so far away. I don't have any people there that I know. I'm going to need you to convince the king to give me a letter asking all these other people along the way to keep me safe or else he's going to have their heads. God, that can only happen through prayer. And God, where in the world am I going to find the resources for this? Jerusalem is in shambles. They don't have any resources. This is going to take money. It's going to take trees. It's going to take labor. They don't have any food. They're exposed. They're vulnerable. God, you're going to have to do something in the place of prayer over four months. Nehemiah is praying, and God is exchanging strategy with him. He wasn't just praying. Prayer was not a substitute for critical thinking, preparation, or hard work. It was the posture with which Nehemiah undertook all of those things. I'm going to read it again. Prayer wasn't a substitute for critical thinking, preparation, or hard work. It was the posture with which he undertook those things. There is in the worship world this debate, which is so silly. Is worship the singing of the songs? Or is worship all of what we do on Sunday morning? Or, you know the phrase, worship is a lifestyle? This one? Of course it is all of these things. That there is a way in which washing the dishes and changing diapers and taking the trash to the curb and cooking dinner and doing all of the monotonous things of life is worshipful. But that is not not permission for us to abandon the corporate gathering of worship in a space at an appointed time with God's people. In the same way, Prayer and being prayerful in life are two sides of the same coin. That being prayerful in all that we do is not an excuse. It's not permission to never stop and just pray. Have time that is isolated alone for God, for being with Jesus. But being with Jesus then doesn't switch off into nothing and now we go and 
do all the secular things. This is the sacred and secular divide with which we have been wrestling for the last hundred years. The life of a Christian is ebbing and flowing out of moments of isolated prayer to doing other things prayerfully, to then moving back into isolated prayer, to then moving back into doing other things prayerfully. We don't ever get to switch it off. This is what Paul means when he says in 1 Thessalonians, rejoice always and pray without ceasing. You can go to, yeah, go to the next verse. These are the, the second and third shortest verses in the world behind Jesus wept. Go back to the one previous, sorry about that. Yeah, pray continually. How is it possible for us to pray continually? Well, it's not possible for us to pray continually, meaning get on your knees uttering words with only God in mind. That, that is not possible. What is possible is living your life postured toward God in an open-ended conversation in which he can break in at any moment and you respond. This is how we pray continually, and Nehemiah models this, and the evidence is in his requests. Verses 7 through 9, he makes specific requests. He knew he couldn't accomplish the mission by himself. He needed the king's favor, protection, and provision. And so he asked. Some of you are carrying burdens, and the time is now to act. You've been carrying them in your heart for weeks, months, years. And you have been an intercessor. You have been a prayer warrior in all senses of the word. And now it's time to do something. Not stop praying, but turn your isolated prayer into prayerful action. Do something with the power of the Spirit in the spirit of prayer. And make specific requests. Nehemiah confesses in the passage he was scared going in front of the king. And what four months of prayer had done for him was purify his motives. But also somewhere along the line, he became convinced that it is better to go before the king and get a no, possibly even losing his own life, than to not respond to the burden of the Lord. That it would be better for me to go before the king and the king receive my request as accusation and take my life than for me to never ask. Sometimes it is true. We have not because we ask not. God is saying, ask, ask me for the details. Ask me for the specific things, the letters of recommendation. Ask him for the specific place, the specific job. Ask on behalf of someone else, for goodness sake. Ask out of your own inconvenience. Pray something for the betterment of someone else and be specific. God cares about the details, and God met Nehemiah in the details. Nehemiah didn't just pray. He was prayerful in his preparation Ultimately, here's what we need to know. In verse 8, Nehemiah says, The gracious hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah knew that it wasn't his own diligence. It wasn't his own charisma before the king. It wasn't the way he had prepared the questions to ask the king. 
that got him what he wanted. It was the gracious hand of God. The community attendants would get ready. We're going to prepare our hearts and minds to come and receive communion. Brian, you can come. Here's what we need to know. Ultimately, only God can bring fruit from our prayers and our preparation. We can do all of the things except bring the fruit. We can till the ground. We can plant the seed. But we cannot make it rain and we cannot make it bear fruit. I want us to take a moment and close our eyes and posture our hearts in this, what I've been saying, this posture toward God of open-ended conversation. Open-ended conversation. There are some of us in the room that hear a message like this, and what I said at the beginning is true for them. They would love to be able to feel the burden of God again, but they feel like the pressures, the stresses, the disappointments of life have numbed their ability to feel and to respond to God. And in this moment, we say the gracious hand of the Lord come and touch their hearts. The gracious hand of the Lord, the same one who turned the king's heart with favor toward Nehemiah and favor toward the Jewish people, that same God is present in this room and is able to touch your heart. There are some people in the room who feel a burden from the Lord and they don't know what to do with it. God, I'm too small. I don't have the resources. I can never make a difference. I'm just one measly person. I don't have the education. I don't have the relationships. I don't have the money. And God says, carry it faithfully and watch what I can do. Carry it in your heart like Mary. Ponder these things in your heart and see what the Lord will do. There are others in the room who have been carrying the burden of the Lord for something, for someone, for a really long time. And God is saying, step out. Take a step. Do something. Act in faith. Go before the king It may cost you something, but it is worth it. What is a life lived if we're numb to the Lord? If we're numb to the invitation of the Spirit, calling us into the very life of God, calling us into prayer, as Jensen says, the opportunity to share our advice with God on how the world ought to be run. There is no greater invitation. And God doesn't do it just to please us, to make us feel like we're doing something. No, God cares. He wants to involve us. God would rather do it with us. And he's saying, step out. Holy Spirit, wherever each of us are at in this space, we say yes to the next step. We say yes to allowing you to till the soil of our hearts. We say yes to waiting patiently. We say yes to committing in prayer and we say yes to preparing and taking a step. Holy Spirit, we say yes. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Ultimately, only God can bring fruit from our prayers and our preparation. You know, as I've been reading the story of Nehemiah, it struck me. Nehemiah 
wasn't the only one to leave the king's palace on behalf of a burden for a group of people. Jesus Christ, the word at the beginning, left the throne of heaven to come into the world that he spoke into existence to save a hurting and broken people. And it cost him his life, unlike Nehemiah. But what Jesus did opened space in the life of God for all of us to come in and participate. So as we come to the table of the Lord, be reminded that this doesn't all rest on you, that what you do matters, but none of us, by what we do or leave undone, can stop God's goodness from coming to bear in the world. So let's come forward to the table of the Lord and receive the body and the blood of Christ our Savior. Come, exit out the left side of your row, and the communion attendants will speak to you, the body of Christ broken for you, the blood of Christ shed for you. Take it back to your seats and let us partake of the elements together.
we come to the table of the Lord each week, it is nothing short of an invitation to partake of the divine life. To be brought in once again into God's own life. I hope and I pray that that blows our minds every week. That this is not just a ritual where we remember in the cognitive sense what Jesus has done historically. Though it is not less than that, it is so much more that Jesus offers us his life each week. That from us would flow rivers of living water. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul says, I received from the Lord what I have also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us break the bread and receive. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let us receive the blood of Christ shed for the remission of sins. Amen. Thanks be to God for these good gifts. And church, let, our, let us turn our eyes toward God with gratitude and sing the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. And that was beautiful. Guys, enjoy your weekend. It was good for us to be together and worship Jesus as one body. Please do not forget, men, if you intend to attend the retreat, sign up, please. The deadline is less than a week away now. All right, go in the peace of Christ. Amen.